It looks to me as if these are the most significant protests since 1989 and they are, I think, a boiling over of not just frustration at the very draconian Covid lockdowns but actually rebellion against the very severe repression, the surveillance state that has developed under Xi Jinping over the last decade. Today I sit down with Benedict Rogers, Chief Executive of Hong Kong Watch and co-founder of the UK Conservative Party Human Rights Commission. He's the author of China Nexus, 30 years in and around the Chinese Communist Party's tyranny. As protests flare up across the country, what's really going on? Will the Chinese regime crack down harder? And how should the West respond? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Benedict Rogers, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to, to, to be with you again. Ben, you've written a very, very important book, and it's almost bizarre that we're having this interview today as multiple protests have manifested all across China, actually. Uh, related to all sorts of things that you've actually written about extensively in China Nexus. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right that my book, The China Nexus, <laughs> couldn't have been better timed. Of course, I had no idea uh, when we decided that it would be published around this time uh, what would be happening. And of course, it's not only the protests that are taking place, but we also saw the very dramatic rejection of Hu Jintao, the previous leader of China, from the National People's Congress. We've seen violence carried out by Chinese diplomats at the Chinese consulate in Manchester a month or so ago against peaceful protests. Um, we've, we've seen the encounter uh, between Xi Jinping and the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And now, most significantly, of course, these uh, extraordinary scenes across China of the protests, which started with uh, protests at the Foxconn uh, uh, Apple iPhone factory. Uh, then, of course, protests in response to the tragic uh, fire uh, in Urumqi. But they've now seemed to have turned into uh, much more than that. Uh, protesters are uh, calling on Xi Jinping to step down, calling on the CCP to step down, calling for democracy and, and freedom. And I mean, it looks to me as if these are the most significant protests since 1989. Uh, and they are, I think, a boiling over of not just frustration at the very draconian COVID lockdowns, but actually uh, a rebellion against uh, the 
very severe repression, the surveillance state that has developed under Xi Jinping over the last decade. It's very interesting, these lockdowns, I mean, they're, you know, an extreme form of social control, right? And so I think they're kind of emblematic of a lot of what the different groups that you describe at length in China Nexus have been subjected to. Uh, of course, you know, much, much worse in most cases than, than these lockdowns. But somehow uh, it just struck me, right, that, that the broader part of the Chinese population has experienced this now, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we've seen, and as I describe in the China Nexus, the horrific persecution of the Uyghurs, which I believe uh, is increasingly recognized not only by the United States government, but by many other parliaments and, and, and other entities as a genocide. Uh, we see the continuing uh, atrocities in Tibet, the persecution of Falun Gong and forced organ harvesting, which certainly has been declared by an independent tribunal as crimes against humanity, um, the persecution of Christians, and of course the dismantling of uh, Hong Kong's freedoms and autonomy uh, uh, in flagrant violation of a, an international treaty. So all of those things have been, been happening over recent years. And in mainland China itself, we've seen increasing repression, crackdowns on on lawyers, on bloggers, on, on, on dissidents, and on civil society. But now we see ordinary Chinese people themselves who are not politically active, who they themselves now are speaking up uh, against the repression that they're experiencing as a result of the, the lockdowns. Well, so one of the things, again, that, that sort of struck me in all this is there's, of course, all these people on, in, in China who are sending out information, including some of our uh, sort of underground correspondents, sending out videos and photos and information through the great firewall of China, right? This amazing kind of barrier to free information. And, you know, one of the things that came out was that these protesters, all of their, you know, they have the QR codes, right? They're supposed to have their COVID tests green. Well, all these protesters, suddenly their QR codes turned red. Mm. Now, that's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it seems to me uh, the most blatant uh, illustration of, of the CCP's weaponization of COVID restrictions. Why don't you lay out for me how you think we got to this point? You laid out a few things that have happened, but I guess I want to understand the significance of them. One, th one of them that you didn't mention, um, I had Feng Zhou on the show, uh, or actually not on the show, but as part of uh, the America's Future series, I did an interview with him on a live stream, and we were talking about the bridge man. He saw that as a very significant moment because somehow in this draconian totalitarian police state, this guy figured out a way to protest for a while and, and get attention without being cleared away, one guy. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering uh, you know, if the people that are protesting now maybe didn't get some inspiration from that or, or maybe some lessons. Mm. I, I think they may may well have done. I, I think that was a, a extraordinary, a courageous act uh, right at the start of the 20th National People's Congress, which was uh, going to and indeed did uh, give Xi Jinping a, an unprecedented uh, third term. Uh, and everything kind of looked good for Xi Jinping at that moment. He seemed destined to, to be in power potentially for the rest of his life if he chooses to. Um, but now suddenly we're seeing protests against that, starting with uh, Bridgeman, and now the protest is against COVID. And I think I, I've just written a, a piece for the Daily Telegraph in, in the United Kingdom about the protests, 
what I see as a breaking of the unspoken pact that uh, had existed or appeared to exist mm. between the people of China and the CCP in the past, where the unspoken deal was that the CCP would preside over an economic boom, living standards would rise uh, dr dramatically, uh, and that there would be, and we saw this in the 1990s and 2000s, and I described this in the book, there would be a, a degree of limited space for some level of freedom of expression, some level of civil society, some degree of religious practice, of course very restricted and there were red lines and persecution. It, it hasn't just been happening under Xi Jinping, it's always happened under the, the CCP. But nevertheless there was that deal where there was economic growth, there was a little bit of space for people and in exchange uh, the, the CCP were able to uh, claim some degree of legitimacy. And it appears that the people of China are increasingly recognizing that Xi Jinping has broken that pact because he's no longer pursuing economic policies that support private ent enterprise, he's reverting to a much more ideological rule and uh, and I think the people are, are now beginning to realize that and to, and, and to stand up. So you mentioned earlier the removal, obvious forced removal of Hu Jintao, the previous leader before she from the room, very publicly I might add. Um, why did that happen in your mind? So I've spoken to a number of people who uh, who know the CCP in greater depth than, than I do, uh, and who observed the uh, that incident. Um, without exception, everyone agrees that it was not simply because Hu Jintao was uh, unwell, as as the uh, CCP uh, claims. It appears that either there was a lack of consultation between Xi Jinping and other factions in the party, including Hu Jintao's. Uh, or there was a consultation with Xi Jinping in which Xi Jinping either lied or broke his word. But either way, it appears that there was a clear disagreement over uh, the choice of candidates uh, for the central committee of the party. And the document that Hu Jintao uh, was trying to get his hands on, uh, and you see that in that footage, uh, apparently was a list of, of those who had been decided to be uh, members of the Central Committee and they were not members of whose faction and Xi Jinping and therefore had him removed before he had a chance to say anything. I suppose cementing uh, Xi's uh, you know, rule in front of all the publicly in front of all the cameras. Yeah. That's right um, and, it, and it really very visually shows Xi Jinping's ruthless one-man authoritarian rule that extends not only to dissent in the country, but even within his own party. Um, and, and it's clear that he wants 100% control um, of everything. I can't help but thinking that, you know, this pivotal moment that you mentioned in these protests that are coming out was this, you know, basically fire that happened in a building in the capital city of Xinjiang. And, you know, of course, the city had been locked down for a long time already. People were, you know, extremely unhappy as lockdown people tend to be. At the same time, there's a genocide happening. You never know what the spark will be that will light things up. But somehow, and this is the question I have, how is it in this totalitarian society that all these people all over the country suddenly realized that this had happened? Because this, there was a protest originally there, but then these protests somehow spread. And, you know, you also outline in the book, by the way, how... Um, the Chinese Communist Party has sort of sown this, uh, you know, 
basically racism against the Uyghur people, right, among the Han population. So it is, I think it's really remarkable uh, that, that these protests are in, you know, 50, 50, I believe 50 cities or more even right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that is what's most significant about it is, um, despite the, the prejudice against the Uyghurs that has indeed been, been sown throughout society, Han Chinese saw the tragedy in Urumqi that certainly affected, I think in the apartment building there were both Uyghurs and Han Chinese, um, but certainly Uyghurs were affected by this uh, appalling fire. How the news uh, spread, um, uh, I don't know. I, I know that obviously the internet and WeChat, uh, Weibo are highly censored, so uh, exactly how uh, the, the news was disseminated and, and it caught on, um, I'm not sure, but it obviously did, and, and it is extremely uh, significant. Well, there's, there, there's two sort of explanations that I've heard. The first one is that they just over, the, the amount of information overwhelmed the censors, and we have seen stuff like that before, when there's just too much for them to deal with it, um, especially because they know how to use coded language and mm. so forth that doesn't sort of trigger the, the auto automated responses. But the second one is, I thought it was interesting. It was like, well, we, are only, we only know about this because the Chinese Communist Party wants us to. Mm. I've seen that from a few people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think both those explanations may have some truth. Uh, and w with regard to the second, I, I was talking to somebody just before coming to meet you, who is a Chinese dissident. We were talking about how so far, thankfully, the police response to the protest has been surprisingly restrained. I think there have been some arrests, but there hasn't been yet the kind of brutality that one might uh, might have expected. Um, uh, and he was saying that's because uh, the, the police have been affected by these very draconian lockdowns as well. I mean, their families, uh, just like any other family, uh, are uh, uh, having to uh, abide by the lockdown rules. And so they have some sense of, uh, and perhaps even share some of the frustration. And it may well be that uh, there are elements in the party that are dissatisfied with Xi Jinping, that see the impact the zero COVID policy is having on the economy, perhaps on their own wealth, and therefore perhaps, it's only speculation on my part, but perhaps that's why they allowed the news to spread. You know, the other thing that struck me, uh, which I'm very curious what you think about, is that you know, this is in a little background. In, in Asia, the idea of wearing these surgical masks is much more accepted in general than it is here uh, traditionally. Um, for example, people wear them to not infect others if they have the flu or something like that. That was, that was something very common to see in Hong Kong and other places. Um, something that was stark in a lot of photos and a lot of video footage from these protests is that these people aren't wearing masks. Yes. Um, that is amazing. I mean, what do you think? Yes, I mean, I think that's also a, an expression of uh, protest and an expression of dissent, along with you know holding up blank pieces of paper. Somebody has uh, described it to me as the blank paper revolution. We had the color revolutions in the past, and, and now we have the blank paper and perhaps the rejection of masks uh, right. revolution. I saw one that said, the sign said, you know what I want to say. Yes. Right? Yes. Probably saw that one. Yes, yes. absolutely. Well, let's dig into your book then and into, you know, your frankly, your 30 years of experience of looking at China. And there's been quite an evolution, actually. You know, I've, and I've always found you to be a very thoughtful person. I think you're a bit modest about your level uh, of knowledge about China and the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily some, you're a very compassionate person. It wasn't necessarily something that you wanted to learn, I think. That's the sense I get from reading your book. But 
what what would you say is kind of the biggest lesson about China and specifically the Chinese Communist Party, the regime that you learned through this time? I think the biggest lesson is is that the Chinese Communist Party cannot be trusted. When I first went to China when I was 18. Uh, in 1992, um, and then I traveled very frequently uh, throughout China uh, through the 90s and the, the first decade of the 2000s, um, and I lived in Hong Kong the first five years after the handover. I, I, I was never a fan of the Chinese Communist Party, far, far from it. I mean, I, I always knew that dictatorships, and especially communist dictatorships, uh, are always repressive and are always untruthful. But I did have a sense in those years in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, that um, perhaps China was uh, opening up, um, certainly opening up economically, but perhaps alongside the economic opening, there was a degree, as I said earlier, of, of some limited space. I wasn't under any illusions that it was freedom, but, but some limited space for civil society, for I met Chinese human rights lawyers who were able to defend cases within certain red lines um, uh, and uh, independent media, bloggers, uh, and, th and that space was, was there. And, and so I had this cautious optimism that as China continued to open up economically, it would uh, continue to open up politically and, 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 and socially. And Xi Jinping clearly has reversed uh, all of that. But it's not just about Xi Jinping. I think it was a clear conscious decision by the party as a whole. Hmm. Probably around the time of the Beijing Olympics in 2008, and I think one of the reasons they chose Xi Jinping was they thought he would follow their, the line they clearly wanted to take, where I think they had become alarmed by how much space had opened up, and they felt threatened by that, and they wanted to, to shut it down. Now, I think Xi Jinping probably has gone further than the party as a whole at that time imagined, and he's by far the most ideological leader since Mao. He has the, the biggest cult of personality and, and, and one-man leadership compared to any of his predecessors since Mao. But I think the clear lesson that I have learnt is that the Chinese Communist Party cannot be trusted, and we've seen that over the international treaty, the Sino-British Joint Declaration over Hong Kong, which they've completely broken and they've destroyed Hong Kong's promised uh, freedoms and autonomy. We've seen it over the agreement that uh, Beijing and the Vatican made. Even just this, this week, the Vatican has finally admitted that Beijing is not keeping its word, and they sound surprised by that. Um, well, they ought to look at what's happened in Hong Kong. Um, so I think that's, that's the main lesson. Well, you can trust it in one thing, and that is to be repressive and to defend its, its interests rather than the country's interests. It makes me think of uh, uh, with Secretary Mike Pompeo's sort of maxim, distrust but verify when it comes to the Chinese regime. Yet so many countries right now um, think of China as a competitor. Um, you know, like that to me suggests someone that's playing on the, by the same rules. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, I was very pleased when the rather short-lived British Prime Minister Liz Truss, uh, who was Prime Minister just for... I think 44 days, one of the things that she did that I really welcomed, and she did other things that uh, were not so good, but um, was to designate China as a strategic threat to the United Kingdom. It appears, it's early days yet, and we'll have to see how he develops his foreign policy, but it appears that her successor, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, is reverting to the language of strategic competitor. So you mentioned, you know, three scenarios in China that approach at least approach genocide you know the, <laughs> there 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 
genocide is supposed to be the worst thing that humans can do to other humans, right? The eradication of a of a identifiable group of people. So again, explain to me how, with this knowledge, because you know all are the the leaders of the let's let's just say the G20 countries, okay, are I think pretty aware of, of these realities. It baffles me that we could think of a country that does this. And then, you know, talk about normalized, normalized relations, talk about, you know, how to work together, how to cooperate. It, it, it seems to me like a very different value system. I think that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, I think the problem for world leaders is that we have, over the years, allowed China, when I say China, I don't mean the people of China, but the regime and the economy of China, to be so integrated into the world economy. We've become so dependent on different aspects of China's supply chains. Think of the extraordinary position that COVID-19 began in, in China. There's, they still refuse an investigation into how it began, and yet we're reliant on, on China for supplies of, of PPE. So I think the more we refuse to hold China accountable for its crimes, the worse the situation will be and the greater threat to our own freedoms the Chinese Communist Party will be. So I think it is double standards. I hope it will change. I think the debate is shifting. I mean, a few years ago, it was challenging even to have the debate. And when I remember in 2016, 2017, when I published reports and, and articles in the UK, I was very much almost a lone voice and certainly regarded as a sort of fringe nuisance. Now, I think what I say is pretty mainstream. The question is, what do we do about it? And that is progress, but we've got a lot more to do. Why don't we just lay out briefly, you know, just what we know in these cases? Well, we can start with the best known, most agreed upon genocide that's being perpetrated by the Chinese regime, which is against the Uyghur people. Mm. So you just lay out what we know is happening there. So in the case of the, the Uyghurs, um, you know, we know that there are hundreds of prison camps, concentration camps, labor camps, where at least a million, but that may well be an underestimate, it could be as high as three million Uyghurs have been detained in recent years, subjected to horrific forms of, of torture, slave labor, sexual violence against uh, Uyghur women. And, and all of this is documented not only by human rights organizations, but most especially by um, the independent tribunal, the Uyghur tribunal, chaired by the very distinguished British lawyer, Jeffrey Nice, who had been the prosecutor of Slobodan Milosevic. So he's someone who you know, knows genocide, knows atrocity crimes uh, when he sees them. There's severe religious persecution, the destruction of, of mosques, uh, Uyghurs being incarcerated simply for having a beard of a certain length or abstaining from alcohol, abstaining from pork, uh, fasting during Ramadan, all, all perfectly normal mainstream Muslim religious practices. The practice of Chinese Communist Party dispatching officials to actually live in Uyghur homes with Uyghur families and, and uh, in many cases abusing the, the women under the, the very nose of her, her Uyghur husband. Um, and then Perhaps most significantly in terms of genocide, the campaign of forced abortions and forced sterilization. And it was on that charge that the Uyghur Tribunal found uh, beyond doubt the, the case of genocide. A few years ago, not many people were talking about it. It wasn't so well known. And I think the general public is becoming aware of it. Um, and, and crucially, in terms of forced labor, of course, there's been a real 
issue of products in our supply chains that are being made by Uyghur slave labour. And I'm pleased that the United States has taken significant action to try to stop that. And I hope other countries, including my own, will, will do more on that as well. Now, let's look at Tibet. And Tibet was something that was generally talked about, thought about some years ago, go back to 2008. In fact, you mentioned the Olympics. That was a time. I remember a huge protest banner being unfurled in, in China, much the, to the chagrin of the, of the CCP. But so, so tell me about that. When I was researching uh, my book, the, the China Nexus, one Tibetan described to me that Tibet was, even before the Xinjiang region, the laboratory for China's surveillance state. Another Tibetan described the whole of Tibet as a prison. And I think that what's significant also is, of course, the uh, party secretary a few years ago in Tibet, who was the architect of the real crackdown. Of course, Tibet for 70 years or so since the Chinese invasion of Tibet has endured terrible repression and, and atrocities, but it has intensified in recent years. Uh, and that's partly because the party secretary a few years ago, Chen Chuangguo, uh, was the architect of this surveillance state. And he went on to be the party secretary in Xinjiang. So you can see that you know, what happens in Tibet is then translated to other parts of China and other, other places of the Chinese regime's repression. And Tibet has suffered, I think, in recent years, uh, falling, falling out of the spotlight, partly because we've been paying more attention to the Uyghurs and to Hong Kong, and understandably so. Also partly because the public figures who gave Tibet a lot of spotlight, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, some Hollywood stars who, you know, campaigned for Tibet, made films about Tibet, are somewhat out of the less on the agenda today. That's in part because the Dalai Lama no longer is able to travel because of his age and his health. So he's not uh, on the international stage in the same way that he used to be. And Hollywood, of course, has been so taken over by the Chinese Communist Party that uh, no Hollywood star today would take up the cause of Tibet. So I think we have to make sure that Tibet remains on the agenda. We're seeing severe religious persecution of Tibetan Buddhists and the destruction of Tibetan Buddhist monasteries, total surveillance of day-to-day -day life. Anyone who has has an image of the Dalai Lama or any expression of their loyalty to the, to the Dalai Lama, if they're found, they end up in prison uh, immediately. I don't think we've, we're seeing yet the, the same, or at least not on the same scale, of prison camps in Tibet as, as we are in Xinjiang. But many of the same elements are there, definitely. You just reminded me of something. You mentioned how Tibet was you know, seen as a kind of laboratory for some of these you know, rep repressive uh, methodologies and so forth. You know, I remember years ago, I should actually look up what happened with this, but there was a court case where um, Cisco uh, Systems, a centerpiece of this court case was a PowerPoint deck that was basically selling the idea of how this new technological system that Cisco was designing would help the Chinese Communist Party um, capture Falun Gong practitioners and, you know, basically pursue repression. The question was, is this something that's okay to do? Because it's something that's happening outside the borders of the country. So there, there, there's another laboratory of repression. So t tell me a bit about the Falun Gong situation now. So I first became aware of the persecution of Falun Gong and at the same time the specific issue of forced organ harvesting uh, probably about eight or nine years ago. I, I was probably aware of it before then, but I first became engaged with it eight or nine years ago. 
And of course, it began not under Xi Jinping, but under Jiang Zemin's leadership. But there's no sign that it has in any way eased or, or, or stopped. And it's extraordinary to me that the Chinese Communist Party is so full of hate and fear towards a practice, and I've come to know many practitioners in recent years, you know, is entirely peaceful, is spiritual, meditative, and is built on good values of truthfulness, compassion, and uh, tolerance. We've seen many Falun Gong practitioners arrested. Uh, indeed, if you're known to be a, a practitioner, you're almost certain to be arrested, forced to denounce your or renounce your beliefs. And when I first became aware of forced organ harvesting from Falun Gong prisoners of conscience and other prisoners of conscience as well, but it, it seems to be to be especially targeted at Falun Gong, I was initially, of course, shocked. Um, I think, like many people, I found it difficult to believe. And, and it is a difficult human rights violation to prove, because unlike most other human rights violations, by definition, the no survivors, the perpetrators of the crime are the doctors and, and, and nurses who carry out the operation uh, or the officials that, that order it. Nevertheless, there has been extensive research, starting, of course, with the amazing work of David Kilgore, who was a good friend of mine, David Matus and Ethan Goodman, but then leading to, and I played a part in helping to secure this, the independent China tribunal, chaired again by Sir Geoffrey Nice, who went on to chair the Uyghur tribunal. Um, that came about in part because I said to Sir Geoffrey, you know, this is the body of evidence. Would you, as a respected lawyer, but someone who has no association with Falun Gong, no agenda on this issue, so in other words, can't be accused of being biased, um, would you give a legal opinion on what this means? And he said, why don't we do more than a legal opinion? Why don't we have a, an independent tribunal? And so that took place. It was a panel of very distinguished lawyers, uh, medical experts, academics, none of whom had any prior agenda on either China or specifically Falun Gong, so were completely independent. And they assessed the evidence that was presented to them in, in testimony, in written submissions, and they concluded that this certainly has been happening, continues to happen, is widespread and systematic and amounts to a crime against humanity. You know, one of the things, I have mentioned this before, but one of the things that just struck me as incredibly bizarre and sort of emblematic of our times is they, they assessed the question of genocide, but they said, well, because, there's, because it's big business, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, because of the profit motive, Right, and for genes for the genocide uh, assertion to be met, yet there has to be like a specific interest in de destruct demonstrated interest in destruction of the group for the purpose of destruction. But here we have the purpose of business, so maybe it's not genocide. But to me, just the idea that that you're having that conversation is mind blowing. Absolutely, I think there are two things at play here. One is clearly a, an inhumane, completely cold, calculated commercial interest of the value of, of, of human organs. And they see the lifestyle of Falun Gong practitioners. They know that Falun Gong practitioners don't drink, don't, don't smoke, lead healthy lifestyles, and therefore have particularly healthy uh, organs. So that interest is there. But I think at the same time, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has, has 
proven that it has an agenda to eliminate Falun Gong, certainly as a belief and as a practice, if not the physical elimination of practitioners. So I wouldn't say definitively that it is genocide, and I think there's work to be done on that. We've, it took us a long time to get there with the Uyghurs, so I wouldn't use the term lightly, but nor would I dismiss possibility. I mean, without doubt, it's crimes against humanity. I want to move a little bit to, I guess, um, the hopeful side here, because this is, you know, the, again, these are some of the darkest things that I'm aware of human beings can do to each other. And there's this whole element of dehumanization, right, that allows for these doctors, presumably, to, they know that they're killing people for organs. But you've talked, you know, one of the things that struck me about the book is you've talked to quite a few amazing, heroic people who are, you know, in many cases risking, have risked everything to get these stories out. Some of them have been on this show. <laughs> um, and I guess maybe if you can share with me a few maybe anecdotes of, of people, because I think that the, one of the things that's, that's wonderful about your book is this, all these discussions with people in the thick of this. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I did over 80 interviews for the book with Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, um, Chinese Christians, Chinese dissidents, Falun Gong practitioners. Taiwanese, but I also talked with various policy experts, uh, legislators, um, uh, scholars uh, from around the world. The thing that uh, stands out from all the people among the different communities that are suffering under the Chinese regime is their extraordinary courage, determination, and just the contrast between their uh, humanity and the regime's uh, inhumanity. For example, I remember having a, an amazing interview with uh, the Hong Kong activist Alex Chow, who had been one of the leaders of the Umbrella Movement in 2014. And he describes his first experience of prison, because although now there are hundreds of political prisoners in, in jail in Hong Kong, um, when he, Nathan Law and Joshua Wong were first imprisoned in August 2017, they were probably the first uh, or among the first uh, political prisoners in Hong Kong. And he described going to prison, um, he described this dilemma that he felt between, on the one hand, knowing that he had done what's right in speaking up for democracy and freedom, and he didn't have any regrets about that. But on the other hand, he was conscious of the real pain that he had put his mother in particular through. And he described to me being in prison and his mother coming to visit him and they couldn't touch each other. They had to speak through a, a screen and they were both in, in tears. But then he went on in, in prison to actually um, advocate within the prison uh, for the rights of, of prisoners uh, and actually made some small gains in terms of demanding that they could have a, the newspaper to read in the morning. I think originally the newspaper didn't come towards the end, uh, until towards the end of the day and he sort of set about uh, advocating that they should receive the newspaper in prison at the start of the day, uh, and he won that battle. There were various other uh, things he advocated for, tiny things, but, but things that uh, by advocating for them and seeing that those things could be achieved kind of gave him a sense of, I'm actually doing something even in prison uh, for, for the cause. And, and I found that uh, very moving and, um, and inspiring. This is one of the things that makes it most difficult when dealing with one of these regimes. Um, and the Communist Party is so, so expert at this. I know so many stories where, you know, essentially they use the family as blackmail to shut you up. And people have to make the most horrible decisions. Do I, 
stand up for what I know is right and potentially help my family and my country and my people, you know, but, you know, my family may be harmed as a result. Um, these are, you know, impossible decisions mm -hmm. that people are forced to make. Uh, and, the, and the CCP specializes in creating those situations and, you know, crushing dissent in this way. Mm. That, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the people that I talked to for the Uyghur chapter of the book was uh, the amazing Uyghur singer and activist who lives in London, Rahima Mahmoud. Um, she's a very good friend of mine. And she described to me how some years ago she called some of her family members. Up to that point, she'd been able to call them uh, sort of fairly regularly and, of course, was careful in, in what was said over the phone, but nevertheless could, could speak to them. And she couldn't get through to, to a number of people in her family. Uh, and finally, she, she got through, I think, to her brother. And she said, you know, what's happened? I can't get through to anyone. Uh, and her brother said, the other family members have done the right thing, i.e. by not taking your call. Um, uh, just leave us in, in God's hands. And that was the last exchange she had with him. So the idea that you then have many, many years, an unknown number of years, potentially, of no contact with your family members, and you don't know whether your family members have ended up in a prison camp. I mean, the pain that people like Rahima, and she's not alone, there are you know, thousands like her, carry is, is enormous. Tell me a little bit about some of the people who against all odds that you encountered have, have kind of stuck with this? Or pick one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, perhaps someone like a, another Uyghur, uh, Dolkan Issa, who he's had to cut off contact with his family. His father died uh, fairly recently and he hadn't been able to have contact with him at all. Um, he's been described by the Chinese regime as a terrorist. I mean, if there's anyone less like a terrorist, it's Dolkanisa. He's a remarkable, entirely peaceful, you know, very moderate, delightful person. But he's been tirelessly speaking up for his people. He's now the president of the World Uyghur Congress. And, uh, you know, he, he'd had a potentially flourishing career, but because of his activism for his people, uh, he was forced to go into exile. Uh, and even in exile, he described to me many times being denied entry to the United Nations because China had described him as a terrorist and had blocked uh, him. Uh, even on one occasion, he was with a U.S. diplomat and he'd been invited by the United States to the U.N. in, in New York and still China tried to, to, to block him. Um, so the, the level of obstacles that uh, China puts in the way of, of its critics, uh, not only within China, but, but uh, outside, is huge. And yet people like Dolkin continue. In this kind of situation, there's a lot of people aware now, you know, as we're doing this interview, that there's something happening in China. There's something brewing that's beyond, you know, the specifically targeted groups and there's many others that we didn't discuss here that I, I, I think you know you outline through some of these amazing interviews in the book and I'd recommend it to anyone to, to, to take a look at those um, but how how can people support the Chinese people here you know what, what's happening in China right now is potentially extremely significant and and None of the other situations that we've spoken about, the Uyghurs, Tibet, uh, Hong Kong, can really change without change in China. So it's in everybody's interests to 
support the the people of China. I think that the free world, first of all, we and I say this in a in a recent article in the Daily Telegraph, we need to try to get across the message to the people of China, to the protesters in China, that we stand with them and that we're behind them. Because um, too often the Chinese regime will play the nationalist card, particularly in times like this where they're facing protests, they'll try to stir up nationalist sentiment and they'll try to portray people like me as being anti-China. Far from being anti-China, I love China and the people of China and I've spent most of my adult life in and around China and it's because I'm pro the country and the people of China that I advocate for their human rights and I, I want them to have uh, the, the freedoms they deserve. So getting across that message that we're behind you uh, and it's the Chinese Communist Party that we oppose, not, not China, is, um, is a really important thing to do. But at the same time, if I could just quickly add, we also need to be careful that we are supporting the protesters, but that we don't uh, fall into the what will inevitably be the CCP's narrative, which is that this is some Western protest movement stirred up by or created by, instigated by Western intelligence agencies. Uh, we must be clear that this, this is led by the people of China, um, but we support them. The CCP is obviously expert at information warfare. And, you know, the narratives, some of the narratives that you describe that the CCP and China and the Chinese people are equivalent. That's probably been one of the biggest, you know, sadly successful, you know, information operations over decades. Um, or that, of course, any protests, of course, have to be a product of Western nations seeking to hurt China. Of course, these narratives will be used. We know that. We've seen it every time. What are you here in D.C. advocating for? specifically? What would you like to see happen? I would like to see, as, as I've just suggested, um, clear messaging in support of uh, the people who are protesting. I also think we should be preparing. We don't know how the regime is going to respond to the protests. So far, the police have shown surprising restraint. But uh, if there is, and I hope that there isn't, but if there is a a brutal crackdown on the protests, um, we need to be signalling to Beijing that that will carry very heavy consequences for them. And I think too often our failures in the past, you know, we didn't have sufficient consequences for the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, we haven't had hardly any consequences for dismantling Hong Kong's freedoms. There have been some sanctions in response by the US uh, in response to the Uyghur genocide, but not by other countries. So I think uh, we should be preparing for there to be consequences in the event of any crackdown, and we should be making that clear. Um, beyond that, um, I think we should be finding ways to circumvent the Great Firewall of China, because the more we can get information into China to counter the uh, CCP's propaganda, uh, the better, um, but also the more that we can do to support. Uh, diaspora communities from outside to play their part, the better. I mean, I, in relation to Hong Kong, there's more to be done in terms of providing lifelines for people to get out. There's a lot that has been done, but there's a lot more that can be, can and should be done. Well, Benedict Rogers, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you all for joining Benedict Rogers and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.